Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and uh, our, our guest presenter, uh, my guest co-host, I should say, uh, Safir Zatash Khan. Welcome to the studio, Safir. I Thank know you. it's not your normal day. No, I know it's a Monday, isn't it? I just all yeah. woke up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, those Monday blues. <laughs> or was it just looking at me, maybe? No, no, Monday is very, very, uh, you know, fresh and, uh, you know, especially because I'm here uh, with you, Talib. So, uh, so yeah, no, I'm, I'm delighted to be here with you all today. Right, and okay. uh, inshallah, you know, um, look forward to uh, to go through these two hours with you with very interesting uh, topics today as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're going to be starting off, kicking off, with um uh you know normally we've got a two-hour show uh split into two topics and i would say on the surface these are very emotive topics that we're Mm. talking about today Mm -hmm. the first hour we're uh, looking at reclaiming lost futures the debate on repatriating foreign children affected by isis so we'll be looking at that and you know just it, it is such a question you know what happens to these children now right who were born in camps uh, it wasn't of their choice. Um, they may well be uh, have uh, been born from you know uh, parents who have been brainwashed. Mm. You know who'd gone over to ISIS, thinking that yes, this is a true caliphat, um, and then finding out the reality of it. And mm. so they're left in this, I suppose you could limbo. Or, or maybe people who just happen to have been caught up in that environment, and yeah. they had nothing. Or not re- any resources to flee that environment. They they couldn't go away from that, uh, mm-hmm. or they were you know stuck in that you know mm-hmm. in that loc in in that locality in that area. Mm. You know what's their blame? I mean, mm. and I think uh, you know what takes the headlines here in the UK is uh, really the test case mm. against uh, Shemima Begum, yeah. and uh, which is still currently going on. There's no decision. Uh, she was of uh, Bangladesh heritage, but mm. had uh, British citizenship. Uh, went over, I think, at the age of 14, 15, uh, with a few friends via uh, Turkey. And now I think she's still, I think, resident in uh, a refugee camp on the Syrian border. Mm. So um, it's, you know, where, where, where does society or, let's say, where does the government take responsibility in this? I mean, you know, if that is the case that you can be stripped of your nationality and your citizenship, um, it, it actually brings a big question mark uh, against all of us really yeah the, the question mark is is the one that um, is is always highlighted here isn't it I mean it's been such a uh, hot debate uh, on both sides uh, but one thing that you know it, it definitely makes uh, very clear that uh, that sort of step was was such a big step that uh, I'm, I'm sure many many uh, young uh, teenagers of her age mm-hmm. or similar age would definitely think twice uh, of doing something similar because mm. it divided the nation, right? Like, I mean, yeah, there's loads totally. of people who said, you know, that, that she, she shouldn't be coming back at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the other side, you obviously have people who said, okay, she's still our responsibility as a country, mm-hmm. so we should take her in and maybe, you know... Yeah, and try her under the yeah. you know, British uh, yeah. judicial system. Yeah. But uh, that's that's our first hour. 
uh, as you can see, it's quite quite uh, a debate already. Uh, and then our second hour will be uh, another very emotive issue uh, affecting everybody: uh, economic crossroads, uh, recession, inflation, and the UK economy. It seems to be like a bad sitcom, or in your terms, Sophia, a Bollywood drama, which is going on and on and on and never really kind of resolving itself. Yeah. Um... Again, uh, another very uh, interesting discussion. I think that we will have, and uh, I'm sure we'll look at this in more detail uh, with uh, our guests as well joining later on. But if you want to join us uh, in this conversation on these topics, do give us a call. 0208-687-7878 is the number to call. You can also tweet at Voice of Islam UK if you wish to send in your comments on Twitter. Do check out our content on Instagram as well. We have uh, all the topics that we discuss um, there as well for you to mm-hmm. uh, engage in. Mm. But without further ado, uh, we'll start with our first topic, uh, children of foreign families detained in Syria, right? Uh, Against the backdrop of a prominent extremist organization in recent times, a thought-provoking question persists. Mm. Um, What should be the fate of these children who are born or brought into the influence of ISIS? I mean, hundreds of women and children, including British families, uh, are trapped in detention camps in Iraq or northeast Syria, who reportedly have been trafficked to Syria against their will. However, there's a moral dilemma um, surrounding the repatriation of foreign children associated with ISIS. Uh, There's an argument for and against bringing these children back to their home countries, whilst supporters emphasise their right to safety, the opponents express concerns about security risks. Um, What's the Islamic point of view regarding this? Yeah, you look, I mean, from an Islamic point of view, uh, everybody has a responsibility. Like parents have responsibilities, uh, the government has responsibilities, and the individuals themselves also have you know, certain responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, if we start with the responsibility of the government or those people who are in authority, the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said that, take care, each of you is a shepherd and each of you shall be asked concerning his flock. A leader is a shepherd of his people and he shall be asked concerning his flock. Then when you come to the parents, and of course in Islam, parents have a huge responsibility. They are responsible to give their children a safe and good moral upbringing mm-hmm. and to ensure that they are there for them, providing you know, uh, security to them, providing you know, uh, the necessary um, things for them to be good citizens. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And then, can I just yeah. jump in there? Because that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. You know, we can, if we actually look at um, the, because there's been a few documentaries now about Shabima Begum and you know she came from a, a, a quite a stable background her parents uh, Bengali uh, migrants to this country uh, were working um, they provided her with you know, what we would think as a stable upbringing right so uh, to, I'm, I'm just being a bit of the devil's advocate to your to, to your opening statement yeah. it was unbeknownst to the, her parents that she was going on these sites Mm. right and i think that actually is one of those things that us as parents now uh, in this world or the society of social media um 
are really kind of we're, we're behind the eight ball mm. because you know as soon as well, actually they don't need to be in a different room right mm. they can be on their phones and be accessing websites which yeah. we don't know about yeah. right yeah. Yeah. on their on their you know on their phones whether yeah. it be on their laptops or on their smart devices um and it's just so you know we we can only but teach our children morals yeah the correct <clears throat> upbringing and we hope and we pray that they, they follow those guidelines. But there, unfortunately, are so many, I suppose, pitfalls uh, that are out there to, to, to entrap them. Because yeah, you can it's, imagine. It's you know, very difficult. Age. You know, children uh, nowadays with the access to social media and the Internet, uh, with its, you know, many advantages, as you mentioned, there are disadvantages. And some of the disadvantages are... This as well, radicalization is mm-hmm. a threat there. Yeah. Um, so, you know, children who may be innocent can easily be manipulated on the other side from somebody who's radicalized. And this is how it happens. Mm-hmm. But I think the parents, what I said, parents have a responsibility. I think without being too harsh on parents, because I understand it's it's not an easy job, but the parents must have a responsibility and must have a relationship with their children in such a way that they never take this kind of an extreme step, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, again, it's easy to say that it sh- shouldn't happen, but there should be, if, if a relationship between the parent and the child is such of a friend relationship, mm-hmm. like, you know, we Islam encourages, and of a l- true love relationship as well, then these things, and especially if it's a Muslim uh, family as well, then it should be clearly mentioned that, you know, any act of terrorism or extremism is against the teaching of Islam. Mm-hmm. That has to come from a very early childhood. I yeah. mean, un- unfortunately, nowadays, because of the threat of radicalization, right? Mm-hmm. But this is just one thing. I think on the other side, there is also responsibility on the on uh, those people who have uh, authority of the internet, you know, mm-hmm. social media, yeah. websites, all of these things as well. Mm-hmm. But there are always things that can be done to prevent this. But on the other side, I also understand that children are children. Sometimes they will yeah, not know. Curiosity, they will, yeah, it? curiosity, the excitement. They might I, I think, think this is the right yeah, thing to do. A very valid point that you've made there, uh, Sophia, <clears throat> is that you know, is this parent-child bond. Mm. And it's not just, um, you know, in Islam, we promote, you know, to teach with love, right? Uh, as opposed to, you know, you have that idea of the carrot and the stick, mm. uh, a reward or a punishment. But... If we have that um, understanding uh, between you know, parent and child, I think one of those words that is most important is trust. Yeah. Okay. And that you know, your your kids can trust, or there should be an environment where your kids can look. You know what? They can tell you everything mm. without fear of recrimination. Yeah. Because right? obviously these girls went without telling their parents, exactly. right? So that yeah. shows that there was something lacking there. Yeah, totally. I mean, the, the, obviously, mm. they knew that there was something wrong, yeah. right? Um, and we don't know the type of message or messaging that they had got through these websites, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, they can be very sophisticated. Yeah, very you know, manipulated. These grooming yes. Uh, yes. Uh, gangs that are out yeah. there. But let's put some more flesh to the bones of this topic. Uh, you know, why uh, or what, why were they imprisoned? Mm. And now, the extremist group known as ISIS established a self-declared so-called uh, caliphate across Syria and Iraq. 
They killed and enslaved many during their five-year period. Uh, after its fall in 2017, many former members were either supposedly executed, mostly men, uh, many women and children were taken into detention camps, uh, and some were repatriated to their home nations. Now, according to the article published by uh, BBC News, hundreds of women are on hunger strike at Iraqi prisons for being imprisoned after what they called an unfair trial. Their sentence ranges from 15 years to life imprisonment. A Russian woman said that she would not eat anything until she was released. She uh, said, <coughs> excuse me, was uh, she was given a 15-year sentence after a 10-minute trial based on a confession she was forced to sign. Uh, the women claimed and they had no contact with embassies and even diplomatic representatives were not present and, uh, at their trials. The hunger strike is a form of protest for not only their conviction, but also the conditions that are being held in. Now, according to this article from the BBC, the inmates they spoke with told them about the beatings and inhumane treatment that they're facing. Many have died inside the prison, including children as young as three years old. Now, some women admit to joining the ISIS group willingly and taking part in their activities, whilst others <laughs> say that they were tricked or forced into joining. Mm. Here's the interesting part, isn't it? Because, um, as you said, that some of those who went, they have agreed and confessed that they went knowingly. They they knew what, what they were they were getting mm -hmm. into, right? And there were the other ones who were tricked, you know, mm -hmm. or they were manipulated, brainwashed into doing something. They were promised something, but mm -hmm. I mean, similar as well. You will hear a lot of people saying that they were promised this, 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 mm -hmm. but the the reality was very different, right? Mm -hmm. I think the sad part is when children get caught up in all this, and I think it's really sad as well with with Shamima Begum and also the other uh, girls and, and young women who have gone there, is that they have, uh, you know, their, their children have suffered. Mm -hmm. I mean, and she's had several children that passed away. Yeah, so that's, that's extremely sad because children, we have to remember, are always, you know, they're innocent. They're born mm -hmm. innocent. They're, they have nothing to do with, you know, what... Uh, someone makes a decision which environment they're in. So mm -hmm. this is a really sad scenario. And I think the whole debate about children, what what do you do with the foreign children who are mm -hmm. born uh, in that I mean, what do, you, what do you think? What's your opinion? Sophia? You know, my, uh, my opinion on this uh, is that uh, children are innocent mm -hmm. wherever they are born, right? So they have a basic right of, of looking after them, you mm -hmm. know. And from there on, I, I, I am not, you know, sure or in a position to say which country they should go in, mm -hmm. whether a country allows a citizenship to be revoked of somebody who's gone to Syria mm -hmm. or um, just plainly, uh, you know, stops anybody from coming back. It's con completely the decision of the country and authority, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're entitled to make that decision mm -hmm. if they are, you know, they have certain policies that they want to stick to or if they feel that it's a security threat for the rest of the country, then they might go for, a, you know, a decision that they want. But I think children, regardless, you know, where they are in, in war-torn countries, uh, they they are uh, they they have no blame on themselves. You know mm. they they have they haven't done anything wrong other than being born. Unfortunately, mm. in a, in a situation. I mean, in, in a sense, it's almost they like need to they, be looked after. They yeah. are collateral damage exactly uh, from this, um, which begs the question, right? Okay, so you know if they and, and they are innocent. I'm, I'm not saying that they're not, but they are the byproduct of you know, and it's unfortunate kind of terminology, but byproduct 
of uh, their parents' indiscretion, right? Whether knowingly or being tricked and hoodwinked. They, they, they will be with their mothers, yeah, right? They'll be yeah. with their mothers, right? Um, so where exactly where does the responsibility in terms of governance in terms of state lie my opinion on this is that actually it must lie with um exactly it is it's a very very kind of convoluted (laughs) because like you could argue actually because they were born there should they not be under the um governance of the country that they're born in, if right? There is a government they have that nationality, yeah. right? So, whether it be in Iraq or in Syria, the problem is: is there a governance there that's gonna, you know, make sure that children have something, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or are they looked after? So, if in war-torn countries where there is nothing, what mm-hmm. what do you do? That's that's the question, isn't it? And I think, yeah. Then, well, I mean, if you come to the UK, you'll be shipped to Rwanda. So, <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's uh, one or the other, Rwanda, right? Rwanda, they say, a very safe country. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's your opinion. I don't know if it's stated. You know, it's funny that Rwanda, up to about a year ago, this government had actually issued warnings regarding their um, uh, state of care for their own people. Mm. So it's very... Um, changeable let's put it that way it's very politicized yeah. let's put it that yeah way, right? and i think neighboring countries um is an option but then again we have another problem right that some neighboring countries don't want to take them in mm-hmm. what do you do then i mean so it's a very very sticky mm-hmm. situation so you know the the, the, the options are that uh, they uh, these children get adopted by the countries that they're born in right and then um i mean that would be the logical for me mm. the logical um solution um or the another uh, solution is or another kind of like possibility is that from the nationality of their parents okay mm. their mothers uh and therefore that should be uh the case but uh i mean we've got uh, uh guests regarding this who will uh, f- uh, most probably shed a better light on the legal ramifications of these children and in fact we're joined by our first guest uh, of the day uh, Hafia Abdurrahman Omar uh, who's there Assalamualaikum peace be upon you thank you for joining us on the Drive Time show today yeah thank you for inviting me so we're talking about uh, you know the the children okay who were born uh, from the conflict uh, so you know, it's, it's, it's a very emotive uh, situation that we have here. Um, in terms of, um, you know, the organization War Child UK, um, they wrote a letter to the UK government addressing the situation of uh, British families in northeast Syria. I mean, what was the actual response that you received? Yeah, so yes, that's true. Um, Our organization, um, alongside a few partner organizations, Human Rights Watch, Reprieve and CRIN, uh, worked on an open letter to the UK government. Um, And for this letter, we also got support from security experts, legal experts, celebrities and politicians. Um, The government has already previously stated its position to us and it's continued to maintain that. Um, And that, that position is that it's very sympathetic to the situation of unaccompanied minors and orphans um, and it will seek to facilitate them on a case-by-case basis. 
Um, to the UK government's credit, it has actually returned 10 children, mm-hmm. and nine out of those 10 children were orphans or unaccompanied children. Um, but the reason for our, our campaign and the reason why we're doing advocacy is that that's only supporting a small category of the children who remain in the camps. And we also really strongly feel that it's not just the children that need to be returned, but British families, and there are approximately 25 British families held in northeast Syria, and we feel that the UK government has a responsibility towards all of them. Hmm. But Hafia, I mean, in in the sense of the responsibility that the British government has, haven't they effectively, you know, kind of put out their store regarding this with Shamima Begum? Well, there's been the case of obviously Shamima Begum and also a number of cases where citizenship deprivation has also taken place mm-hmm. and those are being currently dealt with by the courts. Um, we still strongly are advocating for the UK to take responsibility for all British citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, we also are questioning the citizenship deprivation because ultimately it's the UK government's responsibility to take care of its nationals. Um, and other countries have also done the same in that similar situation. So we've seen an increase in repatriations taking place in countries such as the US, other countries in Europe, all taking their citizens back. And we feel that the UK government needs to do that as well. Mm. I mean, are, UK, are the UK government the only, let's say, you know, the only government currently who are not taking back um, you know, their British or those that had previous had British citizenship? No, so it's not just the only, uh, not only the UK government, but mm-hmm. there is an increasing minority of uh, countries that are not taking that action. So just in this year alone, we've seen eight countries undertake repatriations. Um, this year and last year, compared to the years before, there's been a massive increase um, in the number of repatriations taken. Uh, the US government has been strongly pushing um, for countries to do that. They've returned um, men, women, and children. And also for security reasons, are actually stating that it's really important for other countries to do the same. Mm. And they are available to facilitate uh, with that. Okay. Um, so, yeah, there is just definitely an increase of um, countries doing that. And as I mentioned, the UK government has returned um, some children, um, but there is still you know, a small number of families remaining in the camps, which is which it's not taken responsibility mm. for. I mean, what numbers are we looking at, Hafia, in, in terms of you know, the actual children who are out there in these camps? So in terms of the estimates that we have, we believe that there are approximately 25 British families remaining in the camps, mm-hmm. and there are up to 60 children um, mm-hmm. in the camp, and the majority being under the age of 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, when we compare that to figures of numbers seen in other countries, that's actually a fairly smaller amount. Um, we've seen other states in Europe return um, numbers of in the hundreds or high tens um, in comparison. Uh, Iraq and Syria have the highest number uh, of people in those camps, um, and Iraq's actually been undertaking more and more repatriations and just, I think, last month or in the last few weeks, has returned a number of a few hundred of their own <clears throat> and will need to do that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Gafia, I wanted to ask you, in your role as a policy and ad- advocacy advisor, what specific policy changes or um, initi- initiatives has War Child UK been involved in to you know, kind of address the issue of uh, repatriating foreign children affected by uh, ISIS? 
Uh, yeah, thank you for the question. Um, so in March this year, we released um, a piece of research, and that's actually part of a series that we've been working on titled Being a Force for Good, and that specifically looks at the UK government's legal obligations and, it, and its commitments, um, and particularly the issue of children associated with armed groups. Um, in that piece of research, actually, what's really important to flag, one of the key findings is that a lot of children are held, but not because they've actually committed a crime, but because of this perception that they are in some way linked to these armed groups. Um, and those reasons can be as vague as them nearing, you know, some of the boys, for example, being adolescents and being near fighting age, mm -hmm. or, you know, someone in their family having had that association. Um, but, you know, even despite that, where there are cases, obviously, where children have been recruited by armed groups, um, international law states that those children need to be seen as victims of serious human rights violations and that they are entitled to um, assistance when it comes to their release and reintegration. Um, and that same point also applies to people who've now aged out who are adults but were recruited as children. Um, and then I think, as you mentioned in that first question, we have this campaign that we're working on with partners. So we're continuing in the coming months to really draw attention to the situation of British families in northeast Syria. Um, in some you know, public polling that we actually carried out, we realized large you know, members of the public are not aware of the exact situation, the conditions these people are being held in. Um, the numbers that are still there and what other countries are doing. So we do want to continue raising awareness on that. Um, we'll continue um, doing our public campaigning activities, but also engaging directly with the government and relevant departments to make sure that this is very high on their agenda. Hmm. Hmm. So um, as regards to War Child, I mean, how do you um, balance basically you know, the best interests of the child versus national security then? I mean, how how does that work, you know, when you're actually repatriating um, foreign children who have been affected by ISIS? Yeah, well, as a child rights organization, obviously that's what we're very much driven uh, about, the best interests of the child. Um, and for us, it's the, you know, it needs to be the primary consideration in all actions that are taken. Um, and there has to be respect for a child's right to family life, um, and that means a child cannot, you know, in any situation be separated from their parents, which is why our campaign is broader and calling for all British families uh, to be repatriated. Um, I think it's also, in terms of the security point, it's important, as I've mentioned, other countries have also grappled with the same issue of thinking about the national security considerations. Mm -hmm. um, and the U.S. government has actually said not, not only is repatriation the right thing to do, but actually it is the best option from a security standpoint. The situation is quite serious in the camps. Um, you know, people are very vulnerable there. They're in deteriorating conditions, and they are just being left there with countries not taking responsibility so in terms of security actually the best course of action is to bring for countries to take responsibility for their citizens mm. uh, the other point I'd like to mention as well is we do we have seen examples of measures that countries have put in place those who've already carried out repatriations so there have been arrangements put in place there's been detailed risk assessments taken um, there's close supervision psychosocial support provided to families um, and in cases where adults are believed to be responsible for any crimes, courts have been addressing the, that situation as well. So there are, you know, a lot of different avenues that governments and states can undertake to deal with the situation.
Mm. Mm. Because that, you know, I was just thinking then, as you know, you were uh, uh, giving us a, an idea how you balance the, the risk assessment. I mean, why is it that, you know, the US are promoting the fact that, you know, it is a, a good thing to do repatri uh, repatriation, uh, but in terms of the security aspect? Is it because they don't want, you know, a succession of, you know, youngsters growing up in that kind of environment and hence um, this cycle of what they would call, you know, terrorism uh, perpetuating? Yeah, I mean, that's precisely it. I mean, the conditions of the camps are really dire. Um, there's a lot of violence there. The conditions are deteriorating. Um, there have been cases of children witnessing murders undertaking place in those camps. The camps have also suffered some security incidents. There have been, um, there was a recent, and just in January of this year, um, an incident that then meant some guards were also killed in that. Oh. Um, and it's just very unclear what's going to happen with the security situation. Those people are just being held there indefinitely. Mm. So it is just in terms of, you know, countries such as the UK, such as the US, do have the capability to undertake these repatriations and also address any concerns in that country. And also, you know, the Syrian authorities have also stated numerous times that they, they don't have the capacity to be dealing with the situation on their own. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these the citizens, some of, well, not a great majority, but a large number obviously are from different countries and those countries cannot be abdicating their responsibility um, and putting placing that on uh, the hands of the Syrian authorities. Mm. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, both myself and Safir, uh, prior to you coming on air, we're discussing the fact that whose actual responsibility uh, are these children? Because, say for instance, you're in, you're in the, if you're in this country and you're born in this country, but to foreign nationals, you would have British... Um, nationality, right? You'd be a British citizen. So if they were born, you know, uh, on the Syrian border, they would, I would have thought logically, be um, Syrian uh, citizens. Is that not the case here? Well, no, so in, there's also the issue of if they're born to British parents, yeah. that those children would be British. Um, as, you know, there there is that case, obviously, of where citizenship has been deprived and then that has now created an issue of whether that extends to the children and mm -hmm. that's what's being dealt with and addressed in the courts. But because of the British uh, national nationals traveling there, they are British nationals and yeah, by virtue and extension of that, their children would be as well. Mm -hmm. Would be ultimately each country who has any citizens in the camps to take responsibility for them um, and to repatriate. Mm. So in your view, in your view uh, what are then some effective strategies or practices that states should adopt for children associated with arms group? Uh, you know, this is, you know, the sensitive issue there, you know, taking into account their rehabilitation, their reintegration into society. What, what can be done and what are some countries doing which is effective um, so far that you have uh, seen? Yeah. So, I mean, under like international law and obligations and commitments that states have signed on to, there's quite a lot covered there in terms of what should happen. Um, for example, under the Paris Principles, you know, child, it's very clear that children should not be prosecuted um, or punished solely for their membership uh, of an armed group. Um, under the age of 18, it's very important to consider that they are children and have not, you know, got responsibility for that. Um, and as I was saying earlier, young adults as well, 
are covered under that as well in terms of if they were recruited as young children, international law recognises them as victims and it does mean that states need to provide those people with specialised support. Now that doesn't mean where you know crimes have been committed or um, there is accountability um, that needs to be addressed that the law does not answer that. Where there is evidence that any individual has been responsible for committing those crimes, they can be brought to justice mm-hmm. as long as that happens, you know, meeting international standards and they also get their right to a fair trial. So those are, you know, commitments that a lot of states have actually already signed up to. But I think just in practice, we're not seeing the implementation of it precisely for that question you asked in terms of, you know, balancing security concerns as well as, you know, human rights commitments. But ultimately, these are, you know, enshrined in law. These are commitments Mm -hmm. and security concerns does not mean that these laws and commitments cannot be met. Um, So, yeah, there are, you know, examples of states, you know, as I mentioned, repatriating and in many of the cases they're helping people reintegrate. Um, There's a lot of research that has shown that children who were returned have, you know, adjusted back to normal life. They're attending school. Um, They, you know, have the support of their families. There are also obviously a number of cases where adults who have been um, linked to a type of crime are also being um, processed through the courts. So there are, you know, examples happening all over. Um, Also, we've seen, for example, in a number of countries, handover protocols being signed, and those are um, making sure that, you know, security who have detained children are handing those children over to people who work in child protection and making Mm -hmm. sure that they get the support that they need instead of detaining them or criminalizing them. So, yeah, there are many positive examples, and I think that is something that all states can be continued to, you know, they need to continue implementing, but also pushing other states who are failing to do that to do so as well. Mm, Because the worry is, I suppose, with uh, unaccompanied uh, children is that uh, the government just brings them back and puts them into detention. And, you know, whilst in detention, I mean, we've, we've seen in the news uh, recently, that uh, refugee children have just disappeared out of the system. Yeah, well, so in the case of um, unaccompanied children, in, in terms of the UK, we're not really clear. We know that they are returned, so there is that small number of people who've been returned, mm-hmm. but no, not that they've been detained. Right, so okay. they are you know, receiving support, um, but those cases are you know, obviously confidential and that information isn't really shared publicly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, there are other contexts, not you know, with the UK, but other contexts where children um, have been detained, um, but not charged with anything, but arbitrarily arbitrarily held Mm -hmm. Um, and in those situations it's been pushing for those children to be released because there is no basis for detaining them and international law is very clear on what how children are you know dealt with when it comes to any association with armed groups Mm. well Hafia um, it's been a pleasure speaking to you this afternoon thank you very much for joining us on the drive time show this afternoon yeah thank you so much thank you have a good day yeah you too 0208 687 787 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And, uh, you know, in terms of shedding light hmm. uh, on this on this, on this this uh, issue, you know, for those uh, 25, I mean, we've had, in fact, I think Kafia was, uh, was like saying, uh, some celebrities, I mean, Gillian Anderson, Stanley Tucci, they've come out en masse um, to, you know, 
kind of highlight this issue uh, amongst the uh, amongst you know the, the media, uh, alongside some other influential uh, these influential po- uh, personalities, NGOs including uh, Hafia's uh, War Child UK, uh, Human's right, Human Rights Watch, and in fact national security experts have signed an open letter to the UK government regarding this. Mm, I mean, it's it's a very sad situation, especially with children, because uh, you know we have seen uh, over the years how. Uh, many children, their lives have been lost, uh, not only in the conflict areas, but actually also trying to flee them. Mm-hmm. So people, you know, who you know puts children on 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 you know half broken boats, mm-hmm. and just you know sets off uh, in the ocean, um, you know, with with without. The, the only desperation that's, is that's that's a, that, that's almost like another another topic yeah, in yeah, itself, yeah, right? That we're yeah, talking about yeah, because exactly. um, very emotive once again. You know, we're talking about refugees, right? Yeah. And the defini- definition of a refugee is seeking refuge whilst your uh, homeland is in conflict. Mm, mm. So, in answer, in essence, in answer to your question, yeah. who does that? Well, if you're fleeing through um, fear for your own life, fear for your uh, your children, your family's lives. Then you know it's a risk you would take, yeah, right? Yeah. Because otherwise, I mean, you can imagine, um, is what uh, Kafia was I like saying that the the environment in these camps must be so tooth and nail, yeah. right? That they see you know these you can you know little children who are witnessing death. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've seen videos torture. of torture. Of how uh, tough the life there is. Yeah. I mean, there's they have very little. Mm-hmm. They're obviously depending on the aid that they get, but also you you're looking at just accommodations in tents. There there's no real security for families. There is it. Mm. I mean, there is. Uh, it's not just the aspect of shelter yeah. and the comfort of shelter. Obviously, that's a main mm. thing, right? But can you imagine the psychological mm. damage that has been done to these kids now, right? So that you know, compare it to our childhood right uh okay you know i would think i came i was lucky uh by the grace of god to have been brought up in this country uh went to school uh had a you know stable family upbringing uh food on the table i didn't have to walk through you know streets or roads or whatever where i feared for my life yeah right Maybe a bit of kind of taunting, right? A bit of teasing, <laughs> but that about be about it, yeah. right? So you can imagine, you know, like these children in these camps where, you know, and, and actually pictures of, you know, say for instance, you know, children in Palestine, right? Children in any war-torn uh, country, they must be so accustomed to just walking through rubble, yeah, hearing Dead sirens, yeah. uh, dodging bullets for what? Just to go out to get the bread or mm. go out and get some water, right? Mm. Um, and in fact, there was another question that was coming to my mind for Kafia. That, you know, do a lot of these children, although they might not exhibit um, these symptoms, but do they suffer from PTSD? Oh, right? I'm sure they do. I'm sure they, they do. must do, right? They must must be suffering with for some kind of uh, mental issues, uh, because hey, we we know that anything uh, that uh, you know children go through in their early stages, they it shapes them for life. So so those people who have those children who have gone through these war torn countries, these conflicts, and they've seen all of that, it hundred percent it 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 affects 
mm-hmm. you know but but then again what, what we are looking at is that if you if you can help them if you can support them if you can just you know give them some sort of love mm-hmm. then that could drastically change yeah. the impact into a positive one isn't it oh, of course, that's of exactly course. what we are i mean if you've been deprived of all these things from birth yeah. right you're born in these camps can you imagine just a simple kind of you know, how are you doing yeah. and just Giving them time, right, mm. um, must be such a positive element. But uh, we're joined by Alison Bissett, uh, our next guest of the day. Now, Alison uh, is an associate professor in international human rights law at the University of uh, Reading uh, School of Law. Uh, Asalaamu Alaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Alison. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thank you for having me. So we're talking about these children who have been born in these camps on the border of Syria and Iraq, uh, you know, due to you know the, the this fake caliphate uh, called ISIS, right? And what happens to them, or what should be happening? I mean, from a human rights uh, law perspective, I mean, what are the main legal considerations um, involved in the repatriation of these children? Um, I think there's widespread recognition and acknowledgement that the conditions within the camps fall short of Mm -hmm. internationally recognised human rights standards. Um, For children in particular, there are concerns about rights to sanitation, to food, to be free from violence, and and rights to healthcare and education. Excuse me. Um, But the problem really lies in what to do about those violations and who should do it. There's no consensus or legal clarity on who bears responsibility for those affected um, and for ensuring that their human rights are protected. Um, When we think about repatriation, up until now, repatriation has mostly proceeded on the basis of nationality. um, And UN bodies have called upon national governments to repatriate their nationals. But it's not always easy to determine nationality because few children have birth registration documents, Mm -hmm. Um, and if they do, they were issued by IS and are not recognised by the UN or member states. Um, Many children have parents of different nationalities, and that can make it difficult to determine which state should take responsibility, especially when few states are keen to do so. Um, Some states would prefer to repatriate only children, but in SDF-controlled camps, the authorities will not permit separation of mothers and children against the mother's wishes. Mm -hmm. But I think the main thing is that the real challenge is political will. So in many countries, there's political reluctance to repatriate. There's little public support for repatriation programs. um, And sometimes there's public opposition. Mm -hmm. The lack of legal clarity in this situation makes it easier for states to avoid the issue and leave women and children in camps. That's the that's the difficult part, isn't it? I mean, if the law is not clear there, uh, then mm-hmm. then it's as you said, it's easy for them to just go with the public, uh, you know, what Sentiment, the people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Actually, something that occurred to me, uh, Alison, as you as uh, you know, um, illustrating the, the the complexities here, is that mm-hmm. say, for instance, with us, the UK government, right, the British government, and in the then. Uh, I believe, Home Secretary Sajid uh, Javid, right, mm-hmm. making um, effectively, say, Shemaima Begum, um, mm-hmm. taking away her nationality. I mean, yeah. what actual ramifications has that to the wider public that you can actually ha- be stripped of your citizenship whilst, uh, you know, kind of like away from the country? 
Yeah, well, we should all be very concerned, I mm. think, about um, about those powers. Um, but again, it's it's very complex. I mean, I'm an international human rights law specialist, and here you have this kind of intersection between national powers and, and international legal obligations. Um, but yes, this has been a very sort of dispiriting episode, I think. Mm. Um, so ultimately, though, Alison, I mean, although yeah. this is ingrained in international law, Mm-hmm. You know, is I mean, really, national governments can just choose to ignore that, correct? Um, <laughs> to some extent in this situation, because it's difficult. So if we look at the international law, um, children are protected across the sort of spectrum of international human rights law, and particularly under the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. All countries in the world, other than the United States, are party to that convention, and it sets out standards that are designed to protect all children and provide for their vital needs and interests. The problem here, though, is the extent to which states owe international human rights law obligations outside territory, because that is a complex and disputed area of international law. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me again. Um, and the situation that has arisen in Syria presents new challenges. So states don't have control over the area of the camps or the people within them. And that traditionally means then that they don't incur international legal obligations. Now, the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child has argued that states of nationality do owe obligations because they're capable of providing protection. But the decisions of that committee are not binding upon Mm -hmm. states. Okay. Um, and the European Court of Human Rights has to some extent um, rejected the reasoning of the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, confirming that there's no general legal obligation on states to repatriate their nationals. Mm-hmm. So it brings us back to this argument that the route out of this situation is not legal but political, mm. and there has to be a political effort then to repatriate those that remain in the camps. Mm. Mm, interesting. So in your research on uh, transitional justice and truth commissions, mm. are there any lessons or frameworks that can be applied to the uh, repatriation of foreign children affected by, you know, cases such as ICE? Mm. Um, I think that in, in all matters concerning children, the, the guiding principles of the Convention on the Rights of the Child are important. So those are non-discrimination, um, the best interests of the child, rights to life, survival and development, and the right to be heard. And I think if you use those to inform and structure programmes and initiatives that deal with children, it's always a good, a good starting point. Um, in terms of lessons from the past, I think one of the most important lessons is to realise that not all children will have identical experiences, so there shouldn't be a sort of a one-size-fits-all approach to dealing with repatriated children. Um, to be taken of differences that things like age, gender, disability have on your experiences. Mm. But then that does presuppose that you you have to have a bespoke system then. And then, you know, whilst, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a valid um, argument for it because, you know, not one size fits all. But mm. that's, isn't that just another thing that the government or a national government would say, look, you know what, that's so specialized right um that you know that's just another thing that they can just really kind of overlook you can always find a hook on which to overlook if you're looking <laughs> for that hook i think 
Um, true, um, true that very much so. We um we have very sophisticated programs like we're dealing with children in the UK, as do most of the Western countries that are are really sort of um, at play in this situation. It's certainly not beyond them um, to accommodate the needs of, of of different children within these programs. Mm. So how can, um, Alison, you know, academia collaborate with policymakers and practitioners to develop um, you know, guidelines for these programmes then to be, you know, like I say, or like you say, to be tailor-made and bespoke? Um, I think many academics are waiting to be invited to collaborate. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been, there's been an enormous amount of attention in academic and international organization circles on the problems that face children particularly in these camps um so collaboration is common in policy development and design and there's a wealth of of academic expertise across disciplines to be drawn upon so i think we are we are ready to engage when Mm -hmm. the policymakers are also ready so you won't be holding your breath then alison I like to be optimistic, um, and I hope those calls are coming soon. Mm, okay, I I, I too uh, agree with you there. I hope th- those calls will be kind of like coming soon to your doorstep. Thank you very much for joining us this afternoon, Alison. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. So we have taken a few, you know, opinions from our guests as well. Talked about legalities talked about you know uh responsibilities but we're asking you as well as mm-hmm. listener you know do give yeah. us a call what's your view uh, i on, mean should should they be repatriated yeah. right yeah. um and the funny thing is uh according to a survey from war child uk mm. you would have thought that actually the sentiment is that um you know political will isn't there to repatriate uh these 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 children uh, of ISIS brides, let's say, right? Uh, but actually, the survey conducted by War Child UK, 53% of UK adults support actually bringing home British families detained in northeast Syria, compared with 13% who oppose it. So, you know, the, the sentiment, the consensus is that, yes, bring these families back. And, you know, you, you, you must think that uh, with that, there should be... Yeah, the onus is on the the government now. I think the laws should be clear because, mm-hmm. of course, this was a maybe a new situation for the government to deal with, mm-hmm. and they didn't want to, you know, look soft mm-hmm. uh, on that matter. But then the problem is that if you if you revoke and just strip somebody somebody off their nationalities, then people will have this question in mind that does that mean that this can be done in any other circumstances as well? Well, exactly, which, which, which is the point that I was making point, yeah. to Alison, yeah. right? So it does uh, have a very um, wide-reaching effect, that uh, edict by uh, Sajid Javid, the then Home Minister uh, for uh, the UK government. But to, to further enlighten us, we have um, uh, uh, words from His Holiness, Mr. Masr Ahmad, uh, head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Now, he addressed the peace conference at, uh, or this is from the peace conference at the Peace Symposium uh, regarding these issues. 
with several journalists repeatedly asking about Shamima Begum, a British teenager who travelled to Syria to join a terrorist group in 2015 and who now wishes to return to the UK. As you've probably seen, the news is a lot about the lady Shamima Begum out in Syria and the poor death of her child. And I wondered what you felt about the death of her child and how the UK government has handled the situation. When this issue started at that time, our stance was that uh, she should be allowed to come to the country for the sake of the child. She should be tried in the court. Unfortunately, it is said the child has expired now. So now it is up to the government. Islam never says that uh, you should uh, commit such brutalities, which, is, which are being done by Daesh or any extremist group. Does his holiness believe the British government is to blame for the death of Shami Ben Begum's baby? I don't want to blame anybody. <laughs> what, what was her fate, it has happened. So now leave the matter to God. Hmm? Being a religious person, I don't want to involve myself in such type of politics and this holiness think since, that since you have uh, cancelled her citizenship, his passport uh, has been um, cancelled. She has been denied the right of being citizen of the country. Then now other Muslim countries should take her and then deal with her. Or even it is said that uh, her husband was saying that he wants to go to uh, Netherlands. He's a Dutch. So if he goes there and he takes her uh, along with him, then it's okay. You're listening to The Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Safir Zatash Khan. So we're just coming to the end of the first hour. Anything concluding regarding this this discussion? I mean, it's very emotive, right? Mm. Um, as to the repatriation of these children from families abroad, uh, you know, on in these camps, you know. What yeah. is there to conclude regarding what this? What is there to conclude? That's a million-dollar question. <laughs> uh, I think listening to what uh, His Holiness, uh, you know, Ahmed, the worldwide head of the MDM Muslim community said, I think it's that's the logical, uh, you know, outcome that mm-hmm. uh, would have been ideal. Yes, yes. To trial them for mm-hmm. whatever they have, uh, you know, done. and uh, But, of course, when that option was out of the window and everything was taken away then then what is it that you can do then 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 obviously there you know maybe uh, other muslim countries around there should step in and uh, try to resolve that situation whatever it is i think at the end of the day humanity we should never forget that humanity is part of all of us mm-hmm. and children are innocent and they uh, we we cannot just let them 
die um, without any support, without any shelter, without any help, without any, any basic human dignity and respect. And I think that people do may make mistakes and nobody is prone from, from making mistakes. But of course, uh, when it comes to looking after children, I think it's extremely important that uh, the international community work together, you know, to, to find ways to to support and, uh, and and give the right correction, you can say, to, to those who have who have been led astray. Mm, true. Uh, I mean, in fact, uh, it was once reported, and this is an incident of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, uh, that some children were overtaken by the rush of battle and trampled to death. The Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, was so shocked uh, at this. Um, so to console him, one of the companions submitted, O Prophet of Allah, after all, they were only children of the idolaters. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, said, the children of idolaters are also human, like you, mm. and have the inherent capacities to become the best of men. As a matter of fact, every child is born a Muslim, and it is after their birth that their parents make them a Jew, a Christian, or something else. Beware, do not kill children. Beware, do not kill children. Exactly. So uh, that brings us to the end of the uh, first hour. Please join us after the news where we'll be uh, trying to tackle the questions regarding the UK economy. Assalamu alaikum. Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to Monday's edition of The Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Safir Zatash Khan. So we're coming into the second hour. We're going to talk about something once again, very emotive and uh, a bit of a conundrum, really. Uh, economic crossroads, recession, inflation and the UK economy. So, uh, yeah, buckle down. It's going to be a rough ride as the UK economy is currently seeing. Now, with the economy, you know, we're struggling with weak economic growth you know, ever since Brexit. Yeah, yes, uh, COVID and uh, rising fuel prices. Now, on top of that, highest the highest uh, cost push inflation since the 1970s. Uh, recession is just around the corner. Now, the Bank of England even talks about creating a recession to use it to combat inflation. So that's a bit of a, a misnomer, really, to actually put the economy in a worse place than it was before, just to get a get a, a, a kind of like control over inflation. I'm not quite sure about that one. Uh, our government should act as our guardian in need of crisis. Uh, in in reality, uh, the uh, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, said. All of you are guardians and are responsible for your subjects. The ruler is a guardian and responsible for his subjects. The man is a guardian of his family. The woman is guardian in her husband's house and responsible for her wards. A servant is guardian of his master's property and responsible for his wards. Uh, so all of you are guardians and are responsible for your subjects. Um, so we're going to examine the Islamic viewpoints regarding this on, say, interest rates, poverty, the role of the governance and the rights of the less well-off. Uh, and as we talk about uh, the noble example of how the second successor of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, Hazrat Umar, may Allah be pleased with him, treated the nation under his regime or his rule um, in his time uh, after the Holy Prophet. Now, 
The role of the government is quite easy. The organization or the OECD, the Organization of Economic uh, Cooperation and Development, calculates that the UK will record lowest growth in G20 with the exception of Russia. I wonder what's happening in Russia. Oh, yes. Okay, yes, uh, they're having a few troubles of their own. Now, in the coming... Even inflation there is not that bad. Apparently. Apparently, yes, apparently so. (laughs) So, yes, with the exception of Russia... um, So with low growth, there is less capacity for real wage growth and it will hit government finances at a time when there is need for more public spending and a wish to reduce taxes. Now, poor productivity is due to a short-term approach from both business, the private sector and government, uh, lack of investment in maybe new technology, Labour shortages, now we've seen that, uh, loss of migrant flows from or to and from the EU. Um, most kind of like stark really uh, reminder of that is lorry drivers, mm. fruit pickers, uh, hospitality, um, hospitality workers uh, transport and transport care. workers, right? But the UK economy is going good, isn't it? Well, you know, <laughs> uh, you, would have, you would have thought so, right? So... You know, why, why are we here? I mean, you know, Brexit, is it just because of Brexit? Is it one of those things? The government and most of our, yeah, to, 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 to name but a few, but most of our media sources don't like to touch the idea of Brexit. Yeah, because obviously that's a sticky situation for them politically. But if you look at it, everything from Brexit has basically gone downwards, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. But I mean, I from from you know what way we can see, right? Um, we don't see. Okay, we do see a few riots in Paris currently. Yeah. Uh, which is um, something that we you know kind of like keeping an eye out on. But in general terms, I mean, our productivity is less than, you know, is the least, you know, less than, you know, someone like uh, Russia. We're on a comparative to Russia. And you've got to say that, you know, why have we come to this circumstance? Yeah, I mean, when you talk about Brexit, uh, of course, Brexit, we know uh, we have done so many shows on that before has uh, caused, uh, you know, considerable disruption to the normal EU trade we had before, right? Mm Firms exporting to Europe are faced with an increase in regulation, paperwork, custom forms, charges for selling goods in the UK, uh, in the EU. Um, so high inflation and low productivity uh, growth. Uh, so there is a continued lack of competitiveness with major trading partners. And I think it's a very easy thing to just look at. And, and it's quite logical as well, isn't it, Talib? That if you... The more people that you work with, the more people you network with, and the easier trade you have with mm-hmm. people around you. So just look at a uh, uh, a company, for example, that has the more contacts you have, the more relationships you have mm-hmm. with people in the same trade or mm-hmm. uh, you know people with the same interest, selling, buying. It's going to benefit you. But if you have restrict yourself mm-hmm. to uh, to to not being able to freely trade mm-hmm. or effectively quickly do that trade with other people other companies then mm-hmm. it will affect your productivity it will ap- affect your revenues my god it's mm. fair right yeah, yeah where w- where were you in 2016 <laughs> right when we were having the referendum here 
Uh, and why put me on the negotiation table? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not just a negotiation table, right? It's just a statement of fact. We, I mean, look, there are these old adages. There's no I in team. Yeah, exactly. There's a reason for that, yeah. right? Because there is no I in team, right? Team is spelled T E A M, yeah. right? Simple as that. We work better as a as a cooperative, mm. right? Before, I mean, I think it's a quoted statement, right? That you know, as the EU, we have a marketplace of over five hundred million people. Yeah. Now, okay, we have limited ourselves to our own borders. We have a marketplace of sixty million. So how's that going to work out? Exactly. Right. Plus, we've got these. I don't know these negotiated uh, trade deals mm. with Australia, New Zealand to bring in their meat and their produce. But what's happening to our domestic um, farmers? Mm. Right, they're they're losing out once again. What happened to our fish trade? These Norwegians, right? I'm <laughs> looking at one across the table. Yeah, the cod. Uh, I mean, we we're promised so many things. You know these sunlit uplands of Brexit and they've actually it's it's like ash in your mouth now and what's come home to roost is this you know uh, inflation and one of my kind of like questions actually will be for the guests later on is that the Bank of England although in theory is an autonomous body to the government it's in charge of monetary policy so the only thing that it can do is either lower or raise interest rates mm. right uh, to control inflation. Now, okay, in the 70s, we had high inflation in this country. And monetary policy... Do you remember that? Like, Yeah, yeah. I am that old. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I was just born then, right, in 68. So, you know, I learned about it. Um, How high was the inflation back then? Uh, we're talking about 13%, right? Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. But you see, there are factors then that are not factors now. One of the factors being that you didn't have that higher percentage of homeowners, mm. right, in the 70s than you do in 2023. Now, how are homeowners who are on a mortgage going to be affected by an int- uh, this increase in mm. interest rates, right? Massively, yeah. Yeah, we're looking from 0 to 5% mm. in... A year and a half. Yeah. So it's going to impact upon what they can spend, right? Because if they don't repay, I mean, okay, uh, we've had last week, I believe, uh, the Chancellor coming to talk with um, domestic banks and saying, look, can there be a, um, a holiday, right, for people who get into mortgage arrears? So this is not really mm. solving the problem at root cause. It's mm. just a sticky plaster. Knee-jerk reaction, basically. Right, yeah. over over a wound. It's not mm. going to solve the wound's problem, right? And, you know, how do we solve that problem? How do we... Um, because it's political will, mm. right? It's actually to say... And, you know, when we look at in terms of an Islamic viewpoint, we believe in justice... We believe in honesty, right? Mm. And where does that leave this government and those that who are in charge of us in this country now? Uh, with previous prime ministers, for instance, right, who have been found yeah, I think to have that a problem this, with this political truth. instability and uh, the lots of changes that we have had over the years as well, Talib. I think it does also affect 
um, the overall uh, productivity or growth, you could say, or mm-hmm. the the way the country goes forward. I mean, do you think it's a good idea, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put it across to you, Sophia, right? Mm-hmm. So the Bank of England is going to say, let's actually put the economy in recession. Okay? Yeah. We're basically going to kneecap you as an economy, stop your productivity, because why? We want to get a control of inflation. Mm. What's, what's that going to do? No, but, the, you know, you, how are we going to get out of yeah. this this rut or this this hole that we've we've got ourselves yeah. into, yeah. right? I, look... It doesn't sound logical It to doesn't me. sound logical to bring in a recession to try to restart everything. It's like saying two negatives make a positive, Yeah, exactly. Right? So you have to just... You have to accept the situation that you are in, basically. Mm-hmm. And then you have to look at putting all your effort into... Uh, finding the best ways to come out of it. Mm-hmm. And you have to think about the people because in this country, we have massive gap between the richest and the you know the rest, the poorest, right? Mm-hmm. The, the middle class is not strong. The middle class should be strong mm-hmm. because, and Islam believes that there should be no classes. Mm-hmm. You know, people should, yes, you know, there will be wealthy people, obviously, but there should be no poor people. Because mm-hmm. poverty brings the economy down. Yeah, exactly. So if you try to bring people up, like, look, there's been look, l- it's, so it's, many it's institutions, simple, right? people who have been on strike, yeah. saying that we are working over time, mm-hmm. uh, junior doctors, for example, uh, nurses on strike, mm-hmm. uh, railway workers on strike. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of them, are they're not doing that uh, for, you know, getting a payday. They're actually mm-hmm. doing that to... It's com- the conditions. Com- yeah, to, to... I mean, you asked me a, a question earlier on, right? Mm. Was I around when inflation... <laughs> yes, I was. I was just born then. But as a, as a kid, I saw the strikes, right? Mm. The coal miners' strikes led by Arthur Scargill. And the Conservative government, who was then led by... Uh, Margaret Thatcher broke the back of the TUC, right? Broke the back of the unions with their stance against the unions mm. because the coal miners were a very, very strong union at that time. So they, you know, basically had the police. They were pitch battles, right? I, I kind of like remember images of seeing these police with horses running into, um, you know, people on picket lines, right? Mm without a care and they just wanted to just stamp down this insurrection mm. okay that they saw and they did do now at that point you know there's so many good things that the unions have done for us right that we tend to forget you know working rights yeah uh maternity rights right um sick leave you know paid uh paid sick leave you know these are what we now mm. take for granted, granted yes. right yeah. But they're going to be taken away from us. Mm. Yeah, this is what the government wants for us. But going back to just the, you know just prior to this, when you actually deprive people of that drive to to make money to to earn a decent living, right? Then are you not, like I say, kneecapping yourself because you're you're hamstringing yourself because you're actually getting less in tax revenues. Mm. So how are you going to pay for these people? But actually. Um, someone who's going to be more astute as uh, regarding this, we've got our first guest on uh, today's show, uh, William Scott Lucas. Now, William uh, is a professor of international politics at the University of Birmingham and founder of EA Worldview. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, William. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. 
Assalamu alaikum. It's such a pleasure to be here with you. So we're at odds, you know, because you've got two of the greatest brains in the studio here trying to work <laughs> out how how the how economy, to fix the economy, how yeah. to fix the economy, and we're kind of pretty much on the EPC, really, right? Um, how do you see the Bank of England's approach to creating a recession to com- combat inflation? I mean, is it two negatives make a positive? Well, if you were talking about, quote, a normal economy, yeah. and I do stress the word normal here, mm-hmm. what the Bank of England is doing makes some sense in that when you have inflation running at such a high rate in this country, you know, at around the 9% here, mm-hmm. and what you do is you try to cool off the economy by raising interest rates. That encourages people to save money mm-hmm. rather than necessarily spend it. And if not as many people are spending money, then it brings inflation down. That's the way that the logic goes. The problem here is, is that when you have, is that you've got a broken economy. Right. That the, the inflation developed here in Britain because we've been doing very well in recent years. Mm-hmm. So that a lot of people have a lot of money to spend. The inflation has been driven really by two main factors. One is the pandemic which disrupted supply lines. It disrupted the way that we normally would get goods from other countries. But the second, and I really have to emphasize this, was the self-inflicted damage of Brexit. Mm. Because what Brexit did, and I'm not going to make a political statement here, leave versus remain, just from an economic point of view, what Brexit did is it cut the UK off from its trading main trading market, which was Europe, When you cut yourself off from your main trading market, it affects the supply of goods that you get. Mm -hmm. It cut the UK off from a main market for labor. When you can't get as much labor to work in your industries, those people that do remain, you have to pay them more, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you can't keep everything going. Mm -hmm. And that means they pay them wages. And so some people, like in the public sector, are scrambling to get any type of pay raise. But in other cases, you have what the government sees as the pressure of wage inflation. Mm-hmm. The government made a choice here. The government could have gone one of two ways beyond what the Bank of England's doing. The, bank, the government could have gone away and said, look, people who are not doing as well right now, they're being hurt by inflation, but we're not going to let them get hurt because their wages are low as well. Mm-hmm. We're going to give them a fair return on their work. Or what the government could do is say, well, that's it. The, the priority is to bring inflation down. And I'm afraid we, we can't give pay raises to anybody in the public sector. Um, and, you know, y'all are just going to have to simply sacrifice. And our prime minister, who is not going to be very much hurt by inflation, mm-hmm. we know why, uh, he's chosen basically to take, uh, to take the idea that we all have to swallow the bad medicine of an economy in which you have almost what's called stagflation. Mm-hmm. Stagflation, which occurred in the U.S. in the 1970s and in other countries, and I can explain why if you wish. Stagflation is when you get, and this is contrary to normal economics, you get inflation and a possible recession at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's like uh, the perfect storm, really. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, uh, the, we, the government would like us to think that this is cost-push, uh, is is driven this this inflation is driven by high you know the high wage costs, but I contend that also its uh, element of it is demand pull, because there's an element with us because you you said you know we have had a period of affluence, 
And、mm. when people are affluent, we you know we buy stuff, right?、Uh, there's an economic phenomenon called, I believe, the ratchet system,、mm-hmm. right? The racket. Ratchet mechanism, whereby the ratchet works only in one way. So when we elevate our standard of living, or have an elevated standard of living, it's very hard for us to ratchet it back. So you know, I would contend that there's a kind of time lag between the realization of "Oh my God, I have no money left," to the actual reality of actually, you know what, I'm gonna. You know, be a bit more savvy with my finances because you know what, I'm not getting a、uh, a pay rise、uh, in the you know kind of like under this government. If you're a public servant in the not too distant until my retirement time, right? So、yeah. you know, I have to reassess. So yeah, I I would think that there is an element of that also. I think that's been true in past periods where you've had. You know, year after year of rising GDP、um, and therefore rising wages, I think that was true, say, in the United States in the 50s and the 60s. It was true in Britain. I think pretty much after we got out of the recession of the early 90s until probably about 2008. But I don't think it's been true after 2008 because、mm-hmm. remember we had the Great Recession at、right. that point. We had the financial crash,、mm-hmm. so people have actually, I think, adjusted their expectations for a number of years.、Mm-hmm. I think what has happened here is, and again, this is not this goes beyond, you know, what you would call, you know, the push pull of whether it's the pull or push、mm-hmm. uh, causing these problems. It's actually structural, and that is, is that the structure of the economy is damaged.、Mm-hmm. Uh, the manufacturing base in Britain has been damaged.、Mm-hmm. You mentioned the miners. For、mm-hmm. example,、yeah. uh, there are other sectors that have been damaged for a number of years.、Mm-hmm. The infrastructure in this country is damaged. If you'd like me to talk about things like transport, for example,、mm-hmm. and to an extent the energy grid,、mm-hmm. and then of course you had the structural damage. The structural damage, which is when you take yourself out of a 28-nation block,、mm-hmm. which was your largest economic block. It's your largest block for trade. Both with goods coming in, goods going out, it's one of your largest markets for investment. It's one of your largest markets for labor. When you isolate yourself from your biggest market, and when you don't replace it, you have structurally damaged your economy for the long term.、Mm. And I'm sorry to reemphasize this, but I will tell you that this was exactly the warning that economists talked about in 2016 before the referendum. Mm-hmm. And you may remember the two words that the government of the day and other Brexiteers put on it, which was Project Fear. Project Fear, yes.、Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what it was was Project Reality.、Mm-hmm. And so when Michael Gove, who's still, I believe, around government,、yeah. said, "Oh, but you can't really trust experts, can you?" <laughs> <laughs> you, you can know, trust like, the politicians. <laughs> yeah, you can trust the politicians like me. When、yeah. that statement came down, it was pretty much like we're going to give up any realistic assessment of what we're doing economically with Brexit. We're going to you're going to you're going to have to put your faith in us, and、yeah. I'm using the faith not in the way that we normally use it on this channel. <laughs> yeah, it's、right? like we 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 have to believe in unicorns.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, really. And, and, and I I would love to have a rainbow unicorn for Christmas, but I ain't going to get it. Yeah,、right? exactly. <laughs> And th- what this government did is is not only did it make sure we're not going to get any rainbow unicorns, it basically put coal in our stockings for Christmas, and I'm afraid it made our eats a little bit less pleasant as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, 
why does the idea that people have less to spend when people have less money that will reduce the demand for goods and then slow the price uh, down and uh, you know that will help bring the inflation down how does how does that work or does it work or does it not work well I, again if you're working with classical economic theory you know the idea is, is that when you for example do what the bank of england's doing right now you raise interest rates with the idea that people will be able to save their money right instead mm. of going out and spending it but that of course assumes that you've got an economy in which most people are getting by and doing well mm. the problem here is is that when you raise interest rates in an economy where people don't have enough money to get by day to day let alone save you know who gets hit mm-hmm. right and that's true of for example uh, people who may have been fortunate enough to get a home and can own a home but they're paying mortgages mm-hmm. and we are talking about people that are going to be paying you know probably the average house, uh, if the interest rate rises to 6%, we're probably talking about two to 3,000 pounds more a year yeah. in interest payments. Mm. Um, and it does affect people even if they're renting homes, right, and say trying to get by, because when you raise interest rates uh, and raises the cost of borrowing, it raises the cost for businesses. Mm-hmm. I mean, landlords, cost- landlords will have to charge more to cover their, well, their own buy-to-let mortgages. Landlords charge more. Your business is on the high street. Those that mm. remain, their rents go up. What are they going to do? They have to price up their goods more to keep in business, to maintain a profit margin. Your food retailers, the cost for them of investing in their businesses goes up. You can see where we're going with this. Mm. You know, The issue here is you don't really have a joined-up situation. What the Bank of England is doing is really a policy which would make sense if every other part of the economy was being run effectively. Mm. When the economy is not being run effectively, the Bank of England's actions on their own actually do not solve the problem and they will cause t- damage to certain sectors of society. But what do you think um, is you know, the government, the Chancellor's response in terms of fiscal policy then? Is it not working in concert with the Bank of England's monetary policy? Uh, again, I think Jer- Jeremy Hunt's actually the a more competent chancellor than his predecessors. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put that as but, mildly but that's <laughs> we're, yeah. we're talking about uh, quasi quatang, right? <laughs> yeah, you gave the name, I didn't. Right? So we're talking. Well, yeah. you did say predecessors. So yeah, I'm just looking. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but it, I, yeah, it was a sort of a low bar that was set. Mm. Now, again, in terms of the fiscal policy, the problem here is is that Jeremy Hunt, again, who is a pragmatist, he's not like one of these, you know ideologues or these, mm-hmm. you know, unicorn uh, wishers. Right. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that the government, again, partly because of Brexit, partly because of the effects of the pandemic, partly because of mismanagement, has got a huge deficit. Mm. It's got a huge hole in the budget of around 40 billion pounds, right? And that was the whole problem that the trust quartain combination in that short-lived government mm. never wanted to recognize. So in terms of fiscal policy, uh, you know, I, I think Hunt's smart enough that we're not going to be talking about massive tax cuts to benefit the rich, mm. which would simply increase that government deficit. But it does mean that there's not as much leeway in terms of fiscal policy mm-hmm. in terms of, try, of trying to stimulate the economy. Or he will argue that because if the government invests to stimulate the economy, the response will come back. But wait a minute. 
it's going to increase your budget deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the government, remember, this is a government, either in coalition or on its own, which has really been preaching austerity mm. for more than a decade. Yeah, 13 years. Uh, 13 years. And we never fully came out of austerity. We never actually got the House in order. Mm. Uh, and then Brexit intervened. So I think, and I hate to sound so negative, it's a nice day outside here <laughs> in Birmingham, but you know, you you simply are playing a bad hand. Mm. You're playing a bad hand if you're playing cards, and there's no way you're going to pull a joker out of the pack. Uh, you simply, all you can do at this point is try to minimize the damage. Mm. How do you see the idea of granting food subsidiaries via tax reduction? Well, I, I think... To be honest with you, I, uh, I'm not sure of an across-the-board tax reduction. The problem there is is that when the government has done that, they have had across-the-board tax reductions that have benefited those at the top end rather than the bottom mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, There could be targeted tax reductions or working with tax thresholds. But to be honest with you, what the government needs to do is to make sure, for example, that the basic provisions of life, in terms of housing, in terms of food, in terms of education, are still provided for. Um, and that means uh, providing social programs, right, of assistance. But you mentioned uh, one person who has marked my life for the past 40 years, I'm afraid, Miss Thatcher, in the introduction to this. Marked a lot of us. And <laughs> the, conservative, the conservative ethos of Thatcher, of course, was, well, you didn't need, there's no such thing as society. Mm-hmm. You don't need to provide assistance for those. Um, so that's why we have to talk about food banks being set up, for example, mm-hmm. uh, to try to help people get by. Uh, if the government was running sensibly here, what I think they should do, and mm-hmm. this is just simply mine, and I know they're not going to listen to me, is I do think that despite the fact you've got a government deficit right now, that you do need to make a, uh, an investment into your public services. You need to make an investment into your social services. You need to raise taxes on those who can afford to pay to finance that. You do need a windfall tax on energy companies. It makes no sense. Who, who have made the, huge profits during the last for, years. Yeah. For, a few, for a few companies to yeah. do this, you need to raise the top rate of tax, uh, not by a huge amount, but by enough to be able to fund at least some basics here. You need to look at, for example, other ways, for example, the national insurance payments to get those properly funded. Mm-hmm. Um, you need, in other words, to do, ironically, what a guy named Boris Johnson, you remember him, mm. said he was going to do in 2019. Boris Johnson said in 2019, I'm going to give you more police. Well, we can talk about that in a different program. But he said, mm. I'm going to give you more doctors, more nurses, more hospitals. I'm going to put money into social care. Now, the problem with Mr. Johnson is, to use that quaint British phrase, he's always economical with the truth. <laughs> that, isn't, right. that isn't what he was going to do. But in fact, that was the program. Yeah, but you see, that's the thing, right? With um, manifesto promises, they are that. They're empty promises. And, you know, the thing is, William, right, with someone like the uh, ex-prime minister, he's quite happy with making promises, but not actually filling out the, uh, let's put it this way, the, 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 the flesh on the bones of how are you going to afford the 40 extra or the 40 new hospitals, the 20,000 police officers. Um, that's beside the point, I suppose, because he's not he's not in power anymore. But yeah. to go back to the card analogy, 
Do you think that uh, the government now should be, uh, or the hand that they have effectively with the economy should just say, look, I'm folding it and let's start again? I mean, the honest answer here, and, yeah. and it's one that's not going to happen. They should re- they should announce right now that they're going to rejoin the European single market. Right. Point blank. Uh, that doesn't mean you're going back into the EU, by the way, because mm-hmm. that is the EU, that it would be a political decision. Mm-hmm. But in terms of an economic decision, they join the announce, single market. Join the single market, because mm-hmm. what it does is it starts to rebuild your relationships in terms of supply lines, in terms of trade, in terms of investment, in terms of financial sector, in terms of cooperating institutions. For example, if we have a shock like the pandemic, that we work together rather than working in isolation. Yeah. You know, it's absolutely the logical answer. Uh, I think, you know, we have an election next year. Uh, mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see what the parties say in their manifestos. I have a hunch that no one's actually going to say that because uh, this has become like this bogeyman, right? The spectral thing. Well, it's, it's, it's the elephant in the room because you don't have any sure. media, whether it be state media or private media, willing to just say, you know, look, we've effectively we've cut off our noses to spite our face with uh, Brexit. There is a, a fellow named James O'Brien. Uh, oh, you know, okay, with the just, exception of a few. Yeah, <laughs> and us. With, and, and you. You know, and like, you know, so there's that guy at that small London station, and then there's these people at this very important voice of Islam station. That mm, yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, but, you know and the idea is, is that, like, there are other European countries who, in fact, are not part of the EU have, who have single market arrangements. Mm-hmm. It was actually something that was talked about when we talked about implementing Brexit. Yeah, like um, Norway, for instance. Like Norway, for example. But because of this warped ideology, and it's not even ideology, it's just this warped faith. Mm, it's like a, a cult, sense. The, cult the cult of cult, Brexit. Yeah, exactly. And anybody, therefore, who politically comes out, like Mr. Starmer, or like the liberal, well, the liberal Democrats will come out for it, but if Mr. Starmer comes out for it, he probably would fear that he would lose those mm-hmm. voters that swung to the Conservatives in 2019. Mm-hmm. Because there is, if you still look at leave voters in the most recent poll, uh, more than I think, a majority of them now say that Brexit is not working. Mm-hmm. That it's not working, but almost seventy percent of them still say that Brexit could work in the future. So mm. there's still that hangover that we can't get rid of. That's uh, that's why I think it's it's like a cult, right? Regardless of, and this is, you know, exactly what uh, you know James O'Brien says that you know you are not prepared to accept the. Or you're so arrogant that you, you you're not prepared to accept the fact that you may be wrong. Yeah, and, and well, and, and to be, I'm, I'll stay away from using the word cult in this sense and saying that I don't think anybody who invests themselves politically or socially or economically ever likes to admit they're wrong. Mm, right. True. And I think what you have is also let us be honest here that there are a number of people who have benefited or thought they benefited from their political careers in terms of actually preaching this thing of Brexit will solve everything, it's our Independence Day. Indeed, the person who used that term Independence Day, Mr. Farage, actually then, of course, went into media and keeps on putting out the message with his own radio (laughs) program. Yeah, exactly. You, You have certain conservative politicians who were former ministers like Mr. Rees-Mogg, and I do not know Mm. how this is allowed, by the way, in this country, who have their own program on radio to continue to put out Mm. the idea that Brexit works, 
mm-hmm. even though Mr. Reeves' monk, for example, is smart enough to know that it is not. Mm, true, uh, though. But they're entrenched. Mm. They're entrenched. And at that point, what you have to do is, I think you did get it right with the initial question, which is you have to fold the hand that you're playing, and you have to deal a new deck of cards with a new group mm. of activists, of people in their communities, of people who are not sitting out there putting out political slogans, but saying for the good of all of us, mm-hmm. we have got to come up with a decent workable arrangement. Mm. Well, William, it's always a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Uh, thank you. Peace to you and all your listeners. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number to call. You can also tweet at uh, Voice of Islam UK. Um, now, of course, uh, high inflation we know, uh, mm-hmm. which uh, we currently are witnessing, and uh, low productivity growth. Uh, obviously, there is a continued lack of competitiveness with major trading partners. All of these mm. things do heavily impact your economy, and that's something that we are seeing. Uh, a lack of skilled labor, again, um, mm. and a lack of investment in both I mean, public Sophia, sectors. Yeah, according yeah. to just the research, you know, a bit of research, you know, a bit of stats here mm. from the LSE, London School of Economics. I mean, Brexit's impact on food prices has cost each household £250 more since December 2019. So what are these benefits that we're seeing, if any? Um, I mean, in terms of, let's, let's, let's look at say, for instance, through the prism of Islam, yeah, uh, at one of our previous, one of the uh, enlightened caliphs, yeah, what was his example? Yeah, the, I'm talking about Hazrat Umar. Yeah, Hazrat, oh, okay, <laughs> yes. I thought you were talking about the Prophet's size. <laughs> yeah, no, the Holy Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa Yeah, when he served as a ruler in Medina. Yes, yes, I think we have to go back to those principles and when we look at the Holy Prophet of Islam, uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, you look at how he cared for everyone in the society. And I think one great uh, point that, uh, you know, uh, William, our previous guest mentioned, was that you have to invest in the poorest in the society. This mm-hmm. is not a time to neglect them mm-hmm. because they are future. They're, exactly. they're your workforce. So mm-hmm. you have to make sure that they have all the tools mm-hmm. available to them and that they are paid right. Mm-hmm. Because if people are left poor in the society, you have less uh, productivity, you have less growth. And as those people who, you know, if there is just a section in society that is extremely rich, extremely comfortable, and then the majority of the people are, uh, you know, less fortunate, Mm -hmm. you will see, um, you know, a a disunity. Mm -hmm. You will see an absence of harmony in the society yeah, that would crush down everything an absence of justice an yeah. absence of you know trust within I mean we, we talked about what's happening in France right yeah. I mean yeah. things like that there there is we, we talked about this that yeah. this is not just so, something happened suddenly mm. there is uh, something that's building up yeah, from it's a like, long time it's, yeah. it's the straw that breaks yeah. or will break the camel's back yeah. but to speak more about this we're uh, online with our next guest of the day and we're joined by uh, let me just see. Bear with me one minute. Our second guest of the day, uh, Sean Richards. Now, Sean is a, an economist who specialises in inflation and monetary uh, e- monetary economic policy. Assalamualaikum. Peace and blessings be upon you, Sean. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Thank you, and good afternoon to you and your listeners. Um, right, we're talking about the UK economy uh, recession. You know, what will be the advantage of the Bank of England's strategy in creating a recession for us, Sean? Well, I, I'm not really a believer that there's an advantage in that. Okay. Um, 
You see, the issue here is how do they control inflation? Mm -hmm. If you they don't seem to be able to control it, though. That's the thing. Well, I'll, be I'll explain in a moment. I'll be slightly careful about saying that at, at this stage. Right. Um, the thing is that it's a blunt instrument, and it takes a long time to work. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm saying we, we can't be so sure about that. Now, in economic theory, it says it takes 18 to 24 months to mm -hmm. fully impact. Well, we're not there yet. Okay. And also, I think that things have got slower in the modern era. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, one of the systems is through the mortgage market, and more people have fixed-rate mortgages these days. Mm -hmm. In the old era, when the Bank of England raised rates last month, like it did by half a percent, people would be paying extra this month when they make their July payment. Mm -hmm. Whereas now, many people will be on a fixed rate and that might catch them next year, it might by fluke catch them now, it might catch them the year after, and so on. So that's the thing. The issue here is how does this all work? And the thing is that you hear people talking about mortgages and things like that, but actually it's a relative change. What do I mean? Well, the argument is that the economy slowed down because when you raise interest rates, borrowers are hurt more than savers gain. Mm -hmm. The theory is that if you borrow, you will spend more of your money. So it is, as I said, a blunt instrument and it takes time. Now I'll add another nuance to this, which is that if you look at the Bank of England, it was predicting a recession anyway, quite a bad one and got a lot of egg on its face because mm. the UK economy isn't doing brilliantly but it's bumbled along mm -hmm. and maybe they sort of almost want to justify that <laughs> just to yeah just to yes we, we were right all along yeah yeah <laughs> and, and also there's a secondary issue I mean these are difficult times because it happens the euro area is in recession we're not mm -hmm. these are marginal differences these are you know these are the trends of where we stand um mm. The inflation issue where so far um, the word used in economics is sticky, means it stayed a bit higher for longer in the UK. But there are issues where that may change a little. What do I mean? The domestic electricity bills have just changed in mm -hmm. the UK. Now, that will knock about 0.9 of a percent of the target level of inflation, about half percent, maybe more, uh, towards 2% on the API. So some of it is the structure of the way that we're charged. But it, it's a picture that we haven't faced for mm, now more than 20 years, really. Mm. I'm talking an interest rate rise here, mm. you know, but, inflation like this for longer. But I would say, um, and I think I prefaced this right at the top of the hour when we were talking about that the situation uh, that we find ourselves uh, in the economy now in 2023 uh, in terms of home ownership right and people having mortgages is a greater percentage than it was in the 70s when we had you know inflation rates of 13 percent so you know the, the the government's just or sorry the bank of england's use of monetary policy through increasing interest rates to dampen demand uh i would contend is not all well is is a bit dated now well uh, the issue is come up back in the past, so rightly, it's no longer getting out some of these things that when I was studying at university. Mm. But there are other policies, such as um, wages control. Now, they're talking about wages control, actually, and it control. But that hit all sorts of trouble. The thing about prices control, um, 
which tends to then lead to shortages. Mm. Um, people in another form talk about rent controls, for example, another way of trying to get some on things. And if we look internationally, Berlin tried that in the more recent era and then pulled out the same problems, shortages, lack of supply and so on. So I'm afraid it's not the best instrument in the world, mm. but in general, it's mostly what we've got. Mm. Um, government can help with certain things at times, keeping some of its prices under control. But it, it is a, you know, it is a brutal system, and it doesn't always work as you do. I do a blog each day under my not a yes man. I looked at Australia today. Now they've been raising interest rates too. Mm. But if you looked at the last two months down in Oz, you'd see in May 1.1% increase in house prices, June 1.2% has been reported to. That's basically boom levels again. Mm. So these things, this is back to taking time. I'm assuming that it will operate in the end. But sometimes along the way, and this sort of goes back to your first question, um, you need to hold your nerve if you've got a job. Because you bank of job because politicians used to make two basic mistakes when they had it, whoever was Chancellor. It didn't really matter if it was Labour, Conservative, whatever. Which is when inflation picked up, because raising interest rates is unpopular and they might lose votes, they didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Well, the bad news is the Bank of England copied that because Brasso don't care about votes. For their own reasons, they decided to differ when inflation picked up that was a time to act. Now, my fear is that they might over-respond. Mm-hmm. We're sort of into a period whereby what they should have done would be acting. They didn't. What they have done isn't fully acting yet. So the temptation for them is to keep doing a bit more mm-hmm. because they're under fire everywhere. Mm-hmm. Whereas, mm-hmm. We, in my opinion, we need people to sort of hold their nerve a little bit. Otherwise... They're repeating exactly the mistakes the politicians used to make. They did that. So they didn't follow the stitch in time saves nine philosophy. Mm-hmm. And then later in a panic to sort of make it look good, they did that. And then we do end up in a recession because my analogy for how interest rate works is imagine a brick on a piece of elastic. You pull it out, nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. Then the elastic comes back and you get whacked around the head. <laughs> okay. The trouble is, in the meantime, nothing happens. All right. Apart uh, from so a big headache. Back to my thing, you know, <laughs> hold your nerve. So do, so do you think that with the current uh, inflation uh, in, in mind, we have to wait, what, say, another half a year or more? Uh, till we really see inflation coming down? Because the Bank of England has repeatedly said that the inflation eventually will come down. Is well, is is that in, what you're suggesting? That w- In terms of their policy and the bits that they impact on, yes. We do know about other things, like, for example, um, this month's moving energy prices. Mm-hmm. So we can see how that will move things. Obviously, we don't know what other things will do. I mean, they're little flickers of things. Speaking from personal experience, I bought some milk today and that was a bit cheaper. Mm. If you bought four pints of it, it was 10p cheaper than last time I went. Mm. That's quite a different thing, isn't it? Mm. Mm. From what we've been saying. So hopefully that'll impact, but that's a hope. 
um, in October, we get the next round of energy things, uh, price changes for domestic, and there should be another reduction there. So that there are these things in that, and the Bank of England policy should feed in. But that is always the issue with this, that you have to wait for it to work. Mm. So, Sean, I mean, how, you know, for us and our listeners, how does unemployment uh, affect inflation, the rate of inflation as well? Well, you see, in a way, that's a reflection of a slower economy from mm-hmm. where they've reduced the demand of interest rates. There's a lot of, there's been a lot of economics work on this. There was, um, he was a New Zealander, a Kiwi, I believe, um, Mr. Phillips, and he has a curve. But basically, since he's done it, and this is many years ago, 50 years ago, something like that, all everyone's ever done is argue about what the exact relationship is. Mm-hmm. And so it is complicated. There's a broad sweep. If you slow the economy down by raising interest rates to control inflation, then unemployment's likely to rise. Mm-hmm. However, I'd add a cautionary note to that because after the credit crunch and through this era, in general, we don't seem to get much unemployment these days. Now, I don't mean mm. that. I hope that's not famous last words. Suddenly <laughs> we get it. Where things tend to impact are wages, and particularly real wages, where growth has been poor. Mm-hmm. So I think the world sort of turns on its axis a little bit. Mm. There tend to be jobs around. Um, please don't misunderstand me. I'm sure there's people listening who'd like a job. But in general, there are jobs around. But it's wages these days mm. where the squeeze comes on and particularly what you can buy with them. Mm. Yeah, because the unemployment rate apparently at this time is about 3.8%, so just under 4%. Is that is that a low number? Um, that would be regarded as really low. Mm. If you try, if an over period, the Bank of England tried this about a decade ago when um, Mark Carney was governor and there's an economic theory around the natural level of unemployment. It's not a very nice phrase, but Mm. the idea was if you had a level where inflation would be stable, and they started off at 7%, went to 6.5%, went to 6.25%, 5.5%, Not really sure where it is anymore. I think they've kind of abandoned it. But my point is, the one I was saying before, that the unemployment rate, for given levels of the economy has got lower. Now, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But it also poses a question as to what we're actually measuring, as to how good a guide the numbers are anymore. Mm. Yeah, because, I mean, we've lost... Uh, we were speaking to a previous guest. A lot of, like, the UK's um, labour market, or I should say in industry, has changed because we don't have any primary industries anymore. Uh, we don't even have any secondary industries. Our manufacturing base has gone. We are predominantly a service-related uh, economy now. So, you know, in terms of that, then, you know, there are certain things like, for instance, Brexit, which will impact upon employment because, you know, if we... And, and I think, you know, I was trying to work out are there any possible benefits the Brexit. And I actually think there is one, uh, one kind of like, uh, you know, what's the expression? You know, there's a, there's a, you know, there is a silver lining <laughs> there. And that is that actually, because, you know, a lot of the EU workers have gone back, 
you know, those service industries or those uh, service jobs are still vacant, right? So there is that, um, yeah, that 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 kind of like that vacuum of which domestic workers can move into, and hence, you know, going back to uh, what Sophia was like saying, that level of unemployment. There's always some level of unemployment. It's called, to my understanding, structural unemployment, where people are looking to you know move from one job to another. So there's that element now, I think, <clears throat> which is a benefit to the economy, i.e. EU workers not being there to, to kind of like fill these, these, these places in uh, hospitality, for instance. But ultimately, you know, it's how can the, you know, how, how can the government address this issue in the long term? And you see, I, I think it's more complicated than that. Mm-hmm. I'm more bullish on the whole Brexit argument. I, I'll give you an example. That theory is supposed to be, as you said, that there's sort of European workers would go home, there'd be a labour supply shortage, and actually, ironically, would that drive wages up? In some senses, that might be helpful. Mm-hmm. But if we actually look at the numbers, people have been coming into the UK again. Now, in the very short term, maybe issues because we've people into um, from Hong Kong mm-hmm. and also the Ukraine. But the UK remains in a situation where there is a hell of a lot of migration coming in. Mm. So that the situation is, it seems to be always like that. Again, I was saying earlier, I was looking at Australia. They have the same thing. That may be a feature of the modern era. And even if we have something... In some, uh, many people think of a seismic change like Brexit. In some respects, does it make that much difference? Because mm. people have come from elsewhere. One of the issues, I would argue, for the UK is, you know, how many people can we take? It's in the sense of support on this island. Mm-hmm. And it's an awkward one. I'm a Londoner. Mm. Londoner is maybe the most booming city on earth in some ways. People seem to come in. I don't know where they go. I'll go further. I live in Battersea. You know, mm-hmm. the places I go, talking, there's new people everywhere. And moving <laughs> in, where did they go? Because it felt like we were full up. Right. Yeah, so, it's true. You know, I mean, space is, a, space is a premium in London. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and like, different to the rest of the country. Different to virtually all of the world. Mm. But my mm. point is that these are complicated pictures. Mm. And, it's not just you know, one, the situation one factor. is in flux, yes. Mm. And mm. there are lots of big trends <clears throat> in the sort of move all the time. And sometimes our ability to change it seems quite limited. I mean, in certain things like immigration, we don't seem to have any power to limit it at all because it happens anyway. Mm. Regardless of the government's intention. Well, Sean, it's been a pleasure speaking to you as always. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight is the number two call. Um, you know, Tali, we we talked about the Islamic uh, perspective on uh, these financial issues, and I'm obviously, uh, you know, we have to look at the example when when it comes to, uh, you know, financial uh, responsibilities. Um, there is a very important uh, subject in Islam, a very important obligatory um, financial 
responsibility of zakat, which mm-hmm. is uh, an obligation uh, upon anybody who has saving uh, unused over a period of a year. Yeah, wealth and income. Wealth and income, exactly. So Islam promotes that wealth should be in circulation. Mm-hmm. So it's not sitting in the hands of the super rich, but it actually circulates so people can benefit and it can help in employment, it can help people leveling up, basically, mm-hmm. and all of these things. And then all, the other thing that Islam really uh, prohibits or is very strongly against is the uh, interest. interest, practice of interest, because mm-hmm. that is a destroyer of... Um, of uh, you know uh, uh, productivity and it's a destroyer for people with less means. Mm. So these are the things that are very fundamentally Islamic teachings. Go, uh, along with other things where leaders have to be example, uh, looking after the poor, the needy, and one example of uh, Hazrat Umar, the first caliph. You know, you mentioned uh, some while ago that he used to go around in the streets in mm-hmm. the night. Um, streets that he was responsible for mm-hmm. under his rule. He used to, you know, uh, in disguise, go out in the streets at the night looking for people who were struggling. Mm. And if there were anybody who was struggling, he would go back and bring food for them. And one time, every time, you know, one time he was about to do that, and one of his uh, helpers said that, I will carry the, the load of, uh, of, of the food, mm-hmm. uh, the provisions. But he said on the on the last day or the day of judgment, who will you will not be there to bring? Yeah, exactly. You know, so it's my mm-hmm. responsibility. He showed that as a leader, you have to show responsibility. with your responsibility. Well, also uh, chapter fifty nine, verse eight of the Holy Quran. It says, "Whatever Allah has given to His Messenger as spoils from towns is for Allah and for the Messenger, and for the near of kin and the orphans and the needy, and the wayfarers who are travelling to convey the word of God." These commandments have been given to ensure that the wealth may not may not circulate only amongst those of you who are rich. I mean, this verse illustrates how God has protected the rights of the poor and therefore greatly strengthened the foundations of the Islamic economic order and ensured that the economic uh, condition does not worsen in society. So we're coming to the end of our program here today. A big thank you to our producers, Sophia Amr, Misbah Tariq and Sana Nadeem, uh, to my fellow co-host, Sophia Zatash Khan and our backroom staff, uh, Habib Saab. So thank you very much. This is Monday's edition of The Drive Time Show.